following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. Before we get started, I want you all to make sure you really want to be here and explain to you what we're doing in these sessions. They're actually four breakout sessions that are kind of the, the beginning of introduction to biblical counseling. And so, like, if you've already gone through our Karen Discipleship material, you're welcome to be here, but it will be review. Uh, so this is a great thing for some, somebody who is newer to us or newer to biblical counseling. And the way that our movement works is that you have uh, the ACBC, which Heath is the head of in Louisville, is a certifying organization, and... You have training centers around the country, of which we are one, and we're probably one of the two oldest. And you go through basic counseling training, which enables you to be certified nationally through us and ACBC. Is this all familiar to any of you? Okay. And so the, the process involves taking a class, observing counseling, and taking an exam, doing some reading, and then you counsel under a mentor, of which I'm one. They're called fellows, ACBC fellows. And the objective is to get people highly equipped. Like Keith talked from Exodus 18, how Moses could not take care of everybody. And the idea is to get many people equipped in the local church. And what IBCD has done is we're, with our curriculum, is we actually have one level lower down than ACBC. ACBC has one kind of certification you can go for initially. And it's pretty challenging. Uh, Taking the course is easy. Watching the observation could be easy. But my wife's exam was 70 pages long, and some people haven't written a 70-page exam in their life. And so IBCD, particularly under Craig's leadership, we have a care and discipleship program in which we break it down into baby steps. So you take part one, which is kind of some basics of counseling, and then there's a test and a little bit of reading. Part two, but the tests are like five pages or four pages instead of 70 pages. And then the other element we have is part of the training in addition to instruction, uh, like you'll be getting tonight, is you can watch actual counseling cases. We have videos. And so the, the IBCD, Care and Discipleship Curriculum, it, it looks like this. Uh, a lot of churches are using this as Sunday school curriculum, small group curriculum, leadership training curriculum. And there are going to be a series of four workshops, of which this is one, during the conference, where we're essentially giving you the first four parts of this, And what we hope it will do is you'll get, wow, I want to go all the way through this. I want to get initially IBCD, Care and Discipleship certified, and then perhaps ACBC nationally certified, which we can also help you with. Uh, The way you will get the rest of the training, what I'm going to do is I'll do two sessions. What is biblical counseling? Some of it will overlap with what Heath did just now, which he did a great job with. It'll be expanding some of that. Then another one of our leaders, Tom Maxim, for two other breakout sessions. You don't have to come to all of them. You can come to the one saying, I never want to come back again. But uh, if you stayed on this track, then he would be defining the methodology of biblical counseling for two sessions, broadly speaking. And if you want to continue, 
These exist online in audio form for free that you can listen to any time. We have thousands of people doing that. And then also uh, it, we have it on DVD, and then there's a manual. Like in your notes for this session, some of you have turned in your workbook. That's actually pages out of this manual that goes with. And there are three sets. Level one looks like this. Level two looks like this, except for it says two. <laughs> and then uh, the third part is the observation, where you have 12 sessions of counseling that are realistic counseling scenarios with different certified counselors doing the counseling. Does that make sense? So you're here. Like if, if you've already gone through this and you're certified, some people listen to it again and again as review. People like when they jog, listen to the audios, and they've, they've been through it. So you're still welcome to be here. But it's, it's a great place to be in, in terms of what is biblical counseling all about. So if anybody wants to leave, my wife, for, only for ladies, is talking about gossip across the hall. Scott's speaking about eating disorders next door. But I'm happy you're here. I didn't know if anybody would be here, but I'm really glad you're here. So let me, let me pray as we go. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful presentation we heard. And as we think of the problem of sin and death and the devil and the world and confusion, we thank you that your word has answers. We pray, Lord, that you would make me a blessing to my brothers and sisters now. We thank you for the shoulders on which we stand of those who love the scriptures and care about people and apply the scriptures to their lives. We thank you that you've given us all we need in the Word of God, the Gospel, your Spirit, your church. And we pray that these would be profitable times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's being recorded. Which is ironic because there's already a version of this online. But maybe this will be better and we'll replace that. You can tell me. Um, A hundred years ago, if people had the kinds of problems that Heath was talking about, Someone's dying, a marriage is in trouble, in a more Christian West anyway, America, Europe, people typically would have gone to a pastor, or if they're Catholic, they would have gone to a priest, but people for spiritual help with those kinds of issues would go for religious help. But then with the rise, especially of of secular humanism, of the Enlightenment, uh, before that, Uh, man began to look, instead of looking to the Word of God, to the church for answers, they started, mankind started to look within himself. And now, even in the great universities, many of the great universities were founded to equip people to minister the Bible, right? And a lot of the Ivy League schools that way. And in some of these schools, the Department of Religion would be shrunk way down And now, if you're going to help people, it's the social sciences, sociology, psychology, or psychiatry, which involves medicine as well. And now, as man is looking to himself, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it's in his death. I think Heath did a great job of demonstrating that man by himself does not have a good answer to death. Man by himself does not have a good answer to sin. And of course, secular humanism doesn't even acknowledge sin. And, you know, as we, we're in a world now in which there's social relativism. There's, you know, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. Evil is called good, good is called evil. And as this has been going on, uh, the church 
in many ways has, has failed to stand up and perform its role. And now even in seminaries and Bible colleges, often psychology is taught as the way you help people, where they're relying upon Skinner and Freud and Rogers, as opposed to equipping future pastors, missionaries to use the Bible to help uh, one another. And what I don't think they recognize is that there is a difference in worldview. There's a difference that these are there's a religious worldview behind these things. Uh, one professor of psychiatry, Thomas Saz, writes, and this guy is not even a Christian believer, but he wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness, and he says, I will try to show with the decline of religion and the growth of science in the 18th century, the cure of sinful souls, which had been an integral part of the Christian religion, was recast as the cure of sick minds. So instead of sin, you have illness. And actually, there's been, even in my lifetime, a development where it's gone from talk therapy to pill therapy. It used to be if you went to the scientist to help you, you would uh, talk to some guy who would have you tell you his problems and he'd reflect it back, to your problems and reflect it back to you. Now it might be your GP, your family doctor, who's giving you psychotropic drugs to deal with your emotional problems. Um, and sadly, many churches, uh, we have churches in our area who, when people have problems with depression, conflict, anger, even marriage issues, uh, they might meet with you once and then they want to send you to a therapist who has been trained in psychology or psychiatry and they don't even want to get involved. And even in the church itself or the Christendom, when you listen to Christian radio or even some of the popular preachers, a lot of them are really pop psychologists and not theologians. There was one famous one I won't mention right now, and he would always say, I'm not a theologian. And I remember a friend of mine said, then get off of Christian radio <laughs> and stop talking about theological issues if you're not a theologian. But it was an honest self-assessment because, no, he is a highly trained psychologist and what I'm going to get to is we need people highly trained in the, in the Bible. And what happened in terms of our movement is around 1970, and we actually have at this conference somebody who was around when it happened. That's George Scipione, our former director, a man named Jay Adams, who was teaching at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, published a book called Competent to Counsel. And in that book, he asserted that the Bible is sufficient to help people with their spiritual problems. <laughs> the Bible. And uh, he does not deny, and if you, he's very careful to say, you know, if somebody has a medical problem, you need a doctor. But as Competent Counsel was published, it, it shook, the people it shook up the most were the Christian psychologists, because it was, it's still very threatening to them, even you know, a generation later. And, but that was kind of the birth of the biblical counseling movement. And with Heath being here, uh, actually back in the 70s, it's almost 40 years ago, they established what was then the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. And that began with Jay Adams, and they started the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation uh, for training and the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors for certifying people who have been trained in biblical counseling. Now, the word neuthetic 
put people off. It's just the Greek word nuthateo, which means to encourage or to admonish. It's from Romans 15, 14, where Paul says, Concerning you, I'm convinced you're full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to nuthateo each other, able to admonish or encourage each other. But it's been quite remarkable over the last generation to see an expansion of the biblical counseling movement. It kind of began at CCEF, Westminster Seminary, the beginnings of Nank, which now Heath is, you know, Nank has, he just came back from being in Europe, and there's growing biblical counseling movements in, in Europe, Australia, Africa. We have a guy here at our conference from Nigeria this year, that a guy I went to seminary with a long time ago. Uh, but it's also been expanding in the schools like Master's College and Master's Seminary, switched from being uh, what would, would be kind of a mixture of psychology and the Bible to being uh, believing in the sufficiency of the Bible to help people. Uh, Southern Seminary, where Heath is, is part of its reformation, has moved in that direction. Uh, Reform Seminary now in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. So it's, what's exciting is kind of various institutions are moving in this direction. And it's been a blessing for me to be a part of it for about 20 years. Like I said, if you really wanted to hear the history, George Scipione was there when the whole biblical counseling movement curriculum fit in a closet in a church where they'd go do counseling and watch Jay Adams uh, over 40 years ago. And I've got involved about 20 years ago, actually, after I'd finished my doctor of ministry, George asked me, if I could come on Mondays and counsel for a few hours while students watched me as part of the training program that they had. And uh, I've been doing that. And then when he moved away eight years ago, I became the director. Uh, so well, what's, what's wrong with psychology? The word psychology is not a dirty word. It just means the study of the soul. It's the Greek word suke. Um, the problem will be when people confuse the hard sciences with the social sciences. <coughs> Uh, the hard sciences, chemistry, physics, uh, it's, these are, you know, can be defined, broadly speaking, factually. And you, know, you, you want a doctor who's really good in the hard sciences, who understands biology, who understands, like when I tore my Achilles, the doctor gave me options for healing that had been scientifically researched, and there were definitive ways not to handle it and to handle it. Um, but dealing with the problems of, of the soul is not scientific in the same way. There's research, like there's research psychology. But again, Heath's talk is a great foundation for what I'm saying, is that psychology can't scientifically analyze what is death, why does a man commit adultery? Is adultery even wrong? You know, should a man be with a man or a man with a woman? Or who determines all these things? These are not uh, like studying something in a test tube. And again, Thomas says, that psychotherapeutic interventions are not medical, but moral in character. And psychology is addressing issues of meaning and value and from a very different perspective than, than we have. And yet they'll do it in the name of science. Uh, I was driving around, I was listening to PBS radio the other night, KPBS, and they were talking with a local hospital about teens who are gender confused and how they're getting treatment uh, to be able to 
move in whatever gender direction they want to move. And it all sounds, we're doing research, and we're doing this and that and the other. And the, the, the Bible speaks to issues like this. This is not scientific merely. There's a, there's a worldview and there's a perspective behind their so-called science. Uh, what I will say about psychology would be that they can, with their research, they can be good at description, but they're very bad at prescription. They can say, these are the stages grieving people often go through, and I have no argument with that. But how do I help a person whose mother is dying? They have no idea uh, in terms of the answers that we would bring from Scripture. And with, with secular psychology, and it's complicated, even you say the word psychology, if, if you were, it shows how old my notes are. It used to be you go in the phone book and you look up psychology. What's a phone book, some of you ask? If you go on Google <laughs> and you ask for psychology, you know, and there are over 250 different approaches to psychology. Now, when my Achilles ruptured, I would have been kind of disturbed if there were 250 possible approaches, not only to learn, but and most of them usually don't work. <laughs> and, and so it's not cut and dried in that way. And, but in general, when you detach your understanding of the soul from the scriptures and it becomes something that man comes up with, and if you just look what's being taught, uh, this summer we have an intern who is a senior uh, out of Texas A&M and she's a psychology major. And just in the last few months before she came out here to work with us, she went through the Karen Discipleship curriculum and her mind has been blown because she sees you know, what's unbiblical about what she's been taught, but also how ineffective it is. If you don't understand who man is in relation to God, you're really not able to solve many spiritual problems. And, and so in general, secular psychology, whether it's Freud or Rogers or whoever else, Skinner, um, they have a faulty view of man. Who do they say man is? product of evolution, an autonomous being, well, we go to Genesis 1. God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And you cannot understand, I mean, if, if your whole job is to understand man, mankind, humankind, forgive me if anybody's offended by mankind, humankind, the only way you can understand humanity is you can understand we're made by God in his image. We're not just something that happened by chance over billions and billions of years. And you can see all of this reflected in psychology because you have Skinner with animals and uh, they treat, well, if we test this on animals and behavior on animals, man is the same. No, there's more to man. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Secular psychology views us as merely being physical. They would say our thoughts, our sense of existence is merely just brainwaves going on physically, just electrons bouncing around in your head. You have no existence other than the physical. Well, the Bible says we have a soul. And that soul, even when you die, that soul continues. Of course, the Bible also says soul and body will be united one day in the resurrection, either unto death or to life. And... Also, the, the fact that we're created means that we're accountable to God. We're not free to decide who can marry whom. We're not free to decide how we're going to live based on our own feelings and preferences. We're made by God. We're accountable to God. And then, likewise, you know, what does psychology typically say about people in terms of morality? Blank slate. 
and generally, actually, it's they're good. That, uh, you know, again, if, if you desire sexually whatever it is, if you desire to be a man and you're a woman or a woman and a man or you whatever, that's okay. Because whatever it is about you you want is fine. Well, the scripture says, Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we are deranged beings. We're not in a good position. Abraham Maslow, uh, which is the one psychologist I studied a bit in college many years ago, a uh, quote from him is, as far as I know, we do not have any intrinsic instincts for evil. Now, my conclusion is Maslow did not have any children. <laughs> but then he would say the task of psychology is to bring out man's innate goodness. So he says, since this inner nature is good or neutral rather than bad, it is best to bring it out and to encourage it rather than to suppress it. Of course, then when somebody does do something bad, why did it happen? Well, outside influences, the world, the, you know, you, the peers, parents. Now, what they don't answer, well, how did they go bad? Where did it all begin? And so they're, they're not even fighting the real problem. At, at best, they can treat the symptoms... Of, of the effects of sin, but they're not even dealing with the heart of why sin takes place. And then mankind is autonomous in that it's up to us to solve our own problems without God or anybody else telling us what to do. Uh, famous counseling, and there's a lot of comedy routines, at least in the old days, built around it with the Rogers where you know, the, the counselee is sitting in the chair and, you know, tell me how you feel. Well, I hate my mother. That's very interesting. Tell me more. Well, I want to kill her. Hmm, very interesting. Why do you want to kill her? You, you, don't, you can't actually tell somebody, do this or don't do that. It's just reflective. Uh, where do you get the right and wrong? Well, I have from God. I can say, thus says the Lord. This is wrong. This is right. Um... Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so secular psychology celebrates man's autonomy to be whatever he wants to be. Uh, the great, you know, some of the principles that really became so popular in the 70s, you know, self-esteem, love yourself. And we'll get later how some Christians have bought into that as well. Uh, one quote, self-centeredness is the secret to better mental health. And that nonsense has crept into the church. Some of the most popular preachers say about the same, in the past have said about the same thing. Uh, the psychologist Fromm says the achievement of well-being is possible only under one condition: if we put man back into the saddle. See, in the garden, that's what man tried to do. He tried to take over and take control, and and that creates problems. And then, along with the faulty view of man, it it. And the, it doesn't, there's no understanding of sin and personal responsibility. Maslow says the good impulses within people are warped by cultures. Sick people are made by a sick culture. And you know, we, we see this constantly now in terms of the media and uh, the court system that people who do things that, you know, from my perspective scripturally, just seem to be horrible. Well, no, it's not his fault. It was his, his background, what society did to him. And Jay Adams has a poem that he quotes 
incompetent to counsel. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blacked my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and here's what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence towards my brothers, so it follows naturally I poison all my lovers. But I am happy now that I've learned the lesson this is taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. And Rogers, another famous psychologist, I see members of the human species, like members of other species, is essentially constructive in their fundamental nature, but damaged by their experience. And then the medical model. Um, and I want to make clear, because there's a lot of discussion of this in the biblical counseling world, and people are critical. Uh, Jay Adams and Heath Lambert and George Scipione, myself, all the people who are speaking here, believe there is such a thing as a brain disease. We've, we've counseled people who have had physical diseases that have great influence on them. I wrote an entire chapter on this in, in the book called Christ-Centered Biblical Counseling. So we're not denying that there are physical illnesses that affect people emotionally, mentally, and can be an influence spiritually. But having said that, much of what is defined as mental illness is, in our view, misdefined in that the Bible would often define it as sin. There's a difference between someone who has a brain injury or someone who has, his brain is deteriorating because of schizophrenia and his brain is really, you can see on a scan, this is going wrong. And a person who is a pedophile who desires sexual contact with children. And there are, in a, a newspaper article from one of our local newspapers, uh, the headline was, Dealing with Pedophiles is a Challenge for Our Community. Pedophilia is a mental disorder, and people who suffer from it should be viewed with compassion. Now, the people who suffer from it are children, not the pedophiles. They're doing evil. They're responsible for the wrong they do. And there's a professor at UCSD who works in the courts and tries to explain why these people do what they do and, and lessen their um, consequences. So we're not denying. I mean, oh, a mother who is about to give birth or just has given birth has hormones that are affecting her emotions. And these can be an influence on her. Uh, there are other things that happen to people physically. Our bodies are more complex than the smartest doctor in the world understands. But these are influences. They're not determinative. First Corinthians 10.13, you were told that no temptation will come upon you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So we can be tempted by what goes on with our bodies. But drunkenness and so much of what is called you know, again, pedophilia, uh, these are spiritual 
issues, sin issues, not merely uh, I'm sick. Now, where it becomes controversial is on issues like depression, worry, anxiety. And again, are these issues the Bible addresses? Yes. Now, some people may have a physical makeup where, and I don't know the answer to this question definitively, like, there may be some people, and I'm saying maybe, I'm not saying I'm sure, but there may be some people who are made in a way that for them, drunkenness is more of a temptation than it is for me. Or anger is more of a temptation than it is for me. Or depression, or worry, or whatever other problem people have. And the way you are in your environment, your background, right? That you've, you went in an angry family where people yelled at each other and hit each other. Or, you know, these things can be influences, but they are not determinative. And as a believer who has the Holy Spirit, these, we don't have to be enslaved to these things. And one bad thing about, I mean, there are a lot of problems with calling these behaviors a mental illness. One is, is like in the case of the pedophile, it takes away responsibility. An illness, you know, my friend from Nigeria was complaining that on the plane, he sat between two people who were coughing the whole time. He thinks he's getting a cold. That's not his fault. He's, he's stuck in the middle seat for a 20-hour flight or whatever it was uh, from Nigeria. Illnesses are things that happen to you. Getting drunk is something you choose to do. And the Bible defines that as sin. Again, are some people more influenced by that temptation? But part of it is we're fallen. We're all influenced. Because of our fallen nature, we're all drawn to certain sins. But calling it an illness, I think, can be very unhelpful. There have been actually interesting studies. And right now, in psychiatry and psychology, pharmacology and meds are the big issue. Uh, David Pallison from CCEF has talked a lot about this very interesting stuff. He's a lot smarter than I am about this, but it, it used to be, like I said, is that when people had these problems, even a depressed person, he'd go, go talk to a therapist, so-called, and try to talk about his problems and get help and advice in that context. Now it's much more 10 minutes in a prescription, and then you come back, not to talk about your problems, but to get your meds adjusted so that that will affect your emotional well-being in a way that you agree is a good idea. There was actually a book written by a psychiatrist, which would be a medical doctor uh, prescribing. Called, and he, I don't think the guy's even a Christian. It's called Unhinged, where he's just bewailing what a mess has become of his own profession, where it's just been a pill-pushing thing. I mean, there are times we all feel down. Uh, sadness is an ordinary response to really hard things happening in life. And in one sense, it might be nice to escape the sadness by popping something into my mouth that would make me feel better. But it's not solving... There's a biblical response to sadness and trials and difficulties and anxieties and, and all of these things. And so from our standpoint, we don't tell people you're not allowed to take drugs. We think it's, it's a matter between you, the Lord, your doctor. We will say that even scientific tests are more and more showing that most of these do not prove to be effective long term. Uh, there are scientific studies that have been done that show a lot of the psychotropic drugs 
can, the, whatever effect they claim to have could be explained by what's called the placebo effect. And the, the effect is minimal. I counsel a lot of people on these drugs. Most of them want to get off. Most of them don't like the way it makes them feel. But if that's what they choose to do, they can do that. Uh, something Ed Welsh said that I thought was very good is there may be a physical issue. I'm not omniscient, so I can't be sure. There's always a spiritual issue. And my observation has been in the great majority of cases, people who come in with these problems, when the spiritual issues are addressed, the physical issues take care of themselves without medication. Can I say always? I will not say always. I've seen exceptional cases where people really did have brain malfunctions. But uh, just I'll give you one case example. Now it's been about 20 years. One of my first cases is when I was about Heath's age, that long ago, a man came in at that time who was older than Bunky, Smiley's age this man might have been. <laughs> older gentleman. Smiley is much younger looking than he is. How old are you, Smiley? Okay, about that age. Old enough at that time to be my dad. And this man came in and he had started drinking too much. This is a man who is a professing Christian. He had retired not long ago, and he was drinking too much, and so he's been labeled an alcoholic. He's going to AA meetings. He is sleeping 16 hours a day. He's very depressed. He actually fell asleep while driving. He's having conflict with his wife, and so he's going to AA meetings. He's going to psychiatrists who's got him on stronger and stronger antidepressants. He's what else? He had some marriage therapy with his wife, uh, but he had a, a child about my age who had heard about biblical counseling. He said, well, why don't you go to IBCD and see if they can help you? He'd actually, this man had actually been committed into the local mental hospital for a while, and he was very angry about that. He was talking about divorcing his wife and disowning his children, um, but I guess anger could add to the depression and everything else. And as he came in, and I had him tell his life story, and he's describing how he had been very busy throughout his life. He had been um, active in his church and in missions and in his work. And then the last couple of years he had retired. And he's kind of living the good life, going on lots of trips and vacations and cruises. And every night in this retirement community where he lives, there are you know, parties. And you know, he's, he had, had never had a problem with alcohol before, but he's you know, overusing some. And I had him read... Um, Psalm 32, which is David's psalm of confession about after he'd committed adultery and murder. And he's reading Psalm 32. David says, And when I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My, my strength was drained with the fever heat of summer. And I, I said to this gentleman, I said very respectfully, Look, I'm not sure what's wrong, but I have a theory I want to test. And that is that God never wanted you to retire from serving Him. And that instead of living for the Lord, you've been living for yourself. And that's why you're so depressed and why a lot of this stuff has happened. And in, in this case, as we went through the psalm, we went through more scripture. He said, you mean you're saying that I'm not an alcoholic and I don't have the disease of depression? And I said, well, it seems to me we need to go down this road. And he says, well, you mean my problem is I'm a sinner? I said, yeah, I think that may be the problem. 
And initially he got mad at me. He actually called George Scipione, who was the director at that time, and complained about me. Um, but over time, as we continued to meet, God did amazing work in this guy's life. And um, he started getting into the scriptures again. And I didn't tell him to flush the pills, but if, after a period of time, he's reading good books, he's reading the scriptures, he's becoming engaged. And, and over a period of a few months, uh, he went to his psychiatrist and said, I don't think I need these pills anymore. Oh, no, if you quit taking these pills, you're going to be suicidal, your life's going to be over, everything's going to be terrible. You, you can't do this. Well, I need to do it. Help me. And we never say flush the pills. We say under a doctor's supervision, if you make that choice, you tell the doctor that's what you want and have them tell you how to do it so it's not going to make things worse by suddenly go off. He made that decision. I did not tell him he had to, but that's the choice he made. He went to his A sponsor and said, kind of like, I really think I need to be in church more and I don't need to go to these meetings. Every oh, no, if you don't go to these meetings every day, you're going to be in the streets, in the gutter. You're an alcoholic. That's your identity. Um, anyway, in God's great providence and mercy, this guy... Now it's been almost 20 years. He's still alive, as I hope you'll be in 20 years, and uh, has not had these problems since then. He actually uh, became, uh, went on multiple missions trips with his church, became a leader in the church, got, na- got certified, actually, not just ours, but the national certification, and had a great season, especially in his 70s. He's slowed down a little bit now <laughs> due to physical limitations. But this is what often happens with biblical counseling. I can't say it will happen all the time. I'll explain that as we keep going. But a lot of the problems, and I would say the great majority of the problems that people have for which they're taking drugs, in the list that Heath gave, are spiritually rooted. And then also psychology, we've addressed this already, is the moral relativism uh, Forty years ago, there's, there's something that psychologists use that's kind of their Bible. It kind of looks like a giant family Bible. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, DSM. And I think we're on DSM 5 or 6 now. But in the DSM that was around, I think it was DSM 3, homosexuality was defined as a, as a deviant, as a disorder. And it was something to be treated and then they took a vote in the 70s, I think it was, and they decided, no, it's normal. Don't treat it anymore as abnormal. How do they decide? Well, every man does what's right in his own eyes. There's not an absolute by which they make those. And now they're passing laws saying, if you want to be a professional therapist, you're not allowed to counsel someone out of homosexual desire. If they're a minor, there's law in California, which is one reason why... I don't want to pursue state certification because I don't want to be under their rules. Um, But they don't have any moral absolutes, so it becomes whatever is right in one's own thinking. And in, especially in Freud and other psychologists, guilt is seen as a bad thing. Conscience is seen as a bad thing. Well, John, Jesus says in the upper room that the Holy Spirit will convict of sin. Guilt is a good thing for a believer because guilt is what drives us to the cross. Uh, the law, our failure to keep the laws, our tutor to, to lead us to Christ that so we can be justified by faith. Uh, and they will actually 
actively try to destroy conscience and to destroy the guilt, as if the guilt is the, is the bad thing. And then there's no place, no place for God in their system. Uh, God's left out. And for us, the only answer to the issues that Heath raised, uh, the only issues, you know, the ultimate answer to the kinds of issues for which people seek counsel, and they go to these therapists, is in the Word of God. If you're fighting with your spouse, the Bible has amazing life-transforming answers that are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you with all malice. Be tender-hearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has also forgiven you. In the gospel, there's power to solve this. Uh, there's definitive answer. Uh, Robert Schuller, who was more of a psychologist than a pastor, his quote is, Sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his self-esteem. That's out of his book, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation which is getting to my next point, it's crept into the church. And then secular psychology is, meaning, is powerless to bring about meaningful change. Uh, Freud, after a lifetime of his methodology, said, I found there is little good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash. This is something you cannot say aloud or perhaps even think. Uh, Rogers wrote, when I am speaking to outsiders, I present humanistic psychology as a glowing hope for the future. But within the bosom of our family, I have been trying to say that we have no reason whatsoever for feeling complacent as we look to the future. Um, Dick Gans, Richard Gans, wrote a book called Psychobabble. He was a guy that was a, a psychologist in a hospital, and God saved him. And then he, after being saved, one of the things he's just in. He, he's a very funny guy. We've had him out for our conferences as well, describing the situation. After he became saved, there was like this guy that was in the psychological psych ward who hadn't spoken in like years. And Gans decided, well, I'm going to read the Bible to him, see what happens. Well, yeah, the guy spoke, he cussed at him or something. But then the guy was converted. And, he's, and, and of course, the end of that is after two or three of those, they fired Gans. And he went on and studied at seminary and is now a pastor. Um, and say, well, what about people who seem to get better? And research, secular research has shown, uh, one person studied, surveys show that of the patients who spend upwards of 350 hours on a psychoanalyst's couch, two out of three show improvement over a period of years. The fly in that particular ointment is the same percentage get better without any analysis or the care of a physician. And I'll say this is, I understand, God made us in such a way that problems like depression and especially, but you know, so these things, over time, they go up and down, whether you take meds or see a psychologist or whatever. People don't always stay down in the dumps. A World Magazine said several have mentioned, study after study has shown people are just as likely to solve their problems without a psychologist and that a trained psychologist is no more effective in counseling than a concerned layman. Um, and of course, even if the external is dealt with, I mean, in, in the sense that um, 
whatever they claim was the problem, okay, I don't feel so depressed anymore. I'm taking these pills. Now, they may make me feel numb. They may take away my emotions. But, yeah, I'm not so depressed. Let's say it worked to that extent. Are we satisfied with that as Christians? What's our goal? To present every man complete in Christ. If this person is still a sinner and a rebel against God, and perhaps he doesn't even care anymore, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the bad feelings have gone away, he's not really better off. He's still alienated from God. And the, the solutions we seek in biblical counseling isn't just that people feel better. It's that they honor God. And only a believer can do that. Jesus tells a parable about how you cast out one demon and you know, like out of the house, and if you don't put something else there, then a bunch more come in. And one of my early cases actually reminded me of that. There was a man I knew who had been a drunkard, and he got involved in AA, and he could tell you it's been 15 years, two months, three days, three hours since I last had a drink, and that's fine. But he weighed 400 pounds because he was a glutton, he was addicted to pornography, and he had been unfaithful to his wife. So we really solved the problem. He gave up one idol and got three more. As opposed to a life that is lived in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God, which is our objective. Um, we don't want people just to change idols. And the idol even can be a glutton can turn into an idol who's an idolater who has an idolatry of fitness. Now he is proud because he's thin and he can run marathons and give glory to himself. And he's just as bad off as the fat glutton in the eyes of God. So humanistic psychology is religious in nature. It's opposed to the scriptures. So then we come to, well, how do you deal with that? And Heath in the introduction actually covered some similar ground to what I'm going to cover now. I'm going to touch on it a little more depth than he did. And when I stop tonight, tomorrow morning when it's my turn again in the second breakout session, I'll finish up. So the way this is going to go is the next few minutes I'll talk about approaches that different Christians take. And it's kind of on a spectrum from worst to right in, in our view. And hopefully you'll be persuaded as well. Um, the, the first approach, actually there, there have been books written where... Christians who you know, profess to be believers, and a lot of them are teaching in schools. Like here's psychology and Christianity. It used to be four views, and then they republished it. They added another one, a fifth view. Um, and so professing Christians have different approaches to these things. And one point of view, and this would be something probably typical in some of the mainline denominations that tend to be a bit more liberal, would be the pastor helps people with a very narrow realm of spiritual problems and then the psychologist or the psychiatrist is a professional who helps people with all their other problems, emotional problems and, and so uh, you know, if you've got a problem like you want to know whether you should get baptized, you want to understand what communion is, you want to be a member of the church, talk to your pastor but if you feel suicidal if you are depressed. The pastor really isn't equipped to help you with that. So you need to go to a real professional who's been trained and certified by the government as being fit to help you with that. Uh, some insurance companies want churches to take this approach, by the way. Uh, they don't want you to get sued. 
because then they have a claim to pay. So they would say, we would love for you to refer difficult counseling cases to state-certified counselors uh, because you're not equipped to do this. There's actually a very famous case. Now it's been 25 or more years ago when Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur is pastor, they had a guy who, whom they had been counseling, who was also, by the way, under the care of, I think, a psychiatrist. And this guy took his own life. And the people, the family sued the church claiming, well, you guys shouldn't have done your counseling. You should have left it to the professionals. And it might not happen now, but this was in the late 80s, I think, actually, this case finally got resolved in the favor of the church, offering that spiritual advice. Um, And has anybody under the care of a psychologist or psychiatrist killed themselves, by the way? Yeah. I can't promise you, if you're a faithful biblical counselor, you will never suffer the sadness of seeing someone you've counseled, take their own life. Uh, There's not a methodology that leads to certain success in every case. Um, But, and and these are things written by people who teach, here's something written by a person that teaches in a Christian so-called school. If a pastor feels the problems are not responsive to prayer and spiritual help, and they're severe enough to warrant specially trained professional help, he will refer the sufferer to a trained psychologist or psychiatrist these men are skilled in treating problems such as depression and anxiety. And then here's something, another quote, actually from the book. There's a general agreement that any use of the Bible in counseling should not violate the principles on which the counselor normally operates. Did you catch that? I wish I could put it up on the screen. I'll say it again. There's a general agreement that any use of the Bible in counseling should not violate the principles on which the counselor normally operates. And I've had people I know who are Christians who are therapists who even say, I can't do what you do. I'm not allowed by my professional standards to bring up some of the things you bring up and address things the way that you do. And I've had others say, I'm going to do it anyway, and if I get in trouble, I get in trouble. But... And then here's another quote from a man who teaches counsel or has taught counseling at Fuller Seminary who would be along these lines. He says, in my opinion, the role of the pastor and the role of the counselor are different. The pastor has to declare sin in a way that sets up a barrier with a hurting person. A pastor is a guilt-inducing agent. The counseling office is more permissive. Its role is to understand the person, to communicate at a level of empathy that can facilitate the healing process. So if, you, if you're committing adultery and you go to your pastor, he might tell you you're sinning, and that's not going to help. But if you go to a sympathetic counselor, he'll keep it private, and he'll be patient or sinning. And by the way, I think pastors should be sympathetic to adulterers. I counsel lots of adulterers, and, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so I think we ought to be very kind and sympathetic, but also point them to Christ and repentance and transformation that's only possible in the gospel. And you can't be permissive about it, as that quote said. And again, the, the problem here is, is that they've adopted the worldview of psychology and even the people to whom they send their church members sometimes are coming from a viewpoint that is very unbiblical. Who's qualified to help people with problems that are in their essence spiritual? Well, Galatians 6.1 says, If someone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him gently, each looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. 
when people have problems that the Bible defines as having a spiritual origin from within a man, the heart, as Jesus says, they need spiritual answers from spiritual men and women. They, secular psychology doesn't have those answers. Uh, Rich Gans was told, be a Christian after work. That's when he was a psych- psychotherapist. Be a Christian after work and leave Christianity out of psychotherapy. That's because people kept getting converted. Um, The second approach would be integration. And that would be you kind of try to... You find Christians who are highly trained in psychology, psychology, and they're the best people to help you. So it's um, almost in the first approach... It doesn't matter if they're Christian or not because psychology is so great. The second approach would be to say, yeah, find someone. And, you know, like I said, the, there used to be, the, I think, probably the, well, a lot of the most popular shows on Christian radio, at least in the past. I have not listened to Christian radio so long, I don't even know what's on there anymore. But years ago, it would be Minerth Meyer and Dobson and some of these people who their training is in psychology. They're Christian. I'm not denying that they're Christians. But their training is in psychology. Uh, And the problem I find with this is that, and Steve Virus put it this way, their big book is psychology. They spent 15, 20 years of their life studying this. And they were taught by people who said, these are the answers. And they don't know the Bible very well. And that's where, I mean, I'm not a theologian. That's not my training. Well, and then, but then when they try to help people, and you read some of their books, and you'll see some, and I'll be specific, that you look at Townsend and Cloud with their book on boundaries, or you look at some of Dobson's books that promote self-esteem. And these are just saturated with the popular pop psychology. And in some cases, clearly unbiblical. You know, Matthew 12, Mark 12, there says, the second commandment is this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so, but of course, and they would say, they would say from that, and you've probably all heard this, Canard, that before you can love your neighbor, you must learn to love yourself. That is the most unbiblical statement I can imagine. Uh, the, the imperative, just simple grammar, okay? You need to agree to understand this. The main verb is, it implicit, you should love your neighbor. The as yourself is a clause at the end that says, you already love yourself. The problem is you love yourself too much. But I'm assuming, Jesus, I assume you love yourself. He, he never tells, there's no imperative attached to love yourself. It's not in the Bible. It's love your neighbor and love God. That's what you're bad at. It's the same argument is used with husbands in Ephesians 5. Husband ought to love his wife as his own body. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And, and, And yet they will say the key to parenting is to build the self esteem of your kid. Or the key to you being able to love others is to learn to love and accept yourself. You're probably familiar with the 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 2, where Paul says, and I'll start in verse 1, Realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, 
ungrateful, unholy. The, the first on that unholy list is the very thing that Dr. So-and-so on the radio or even behind the pulpit is saying is the great need of humanity. And again, the reason is they, they tend to accept and study the psychological findings and then they neglect sound, in-depth Bible teaching. Uh, they just assume the, the benefits of self-esteem. One of the views actually there, again, by these are Christians, professing Christians, has been influenced by the psychological research that homosexuality is normal and should be accepted. And that's the position this Christian psychologist is taking. That's just not what the Bible says. But he's allowed his respect for secular research to trump the plain reading of Scripture. I have actually had... I hear amazing stories. A lot of the people who come to us at IBC, some of them it's like, we're the last resort. They've tried everything. So we hear all these stories, and I'll ask, well, what did they tell you here and there? And I had a couple come in one time, and when they were engaged, they were going to some Christian therapist in Orange County, Christian counselor, and the question was raised if they were sexually attracted to each other. I said, well, I think so, but we're not doing anything, which I would say, good. <laughs> and so the counselor actually said, and this is back when you had to buy porn because there was no internet, but get a Playboy or something and make sure you're attracted to women because you may not be attracted to women. And I've heard these stories multiple times. It's just, it's, just, it's insane. <laughs> It's you know, Matthew 5. Jesus said, don't look at women like that. That's so wrong. It's destructive. It's unbiblical. Um, one story after the other. I, I've got five minutes. I can't tell you one story after the other. But the things I've heard, the stories I've heard of sometimes just, you know, even some of the boundary stuff where, I mean, it's not that it's absence of any truth. There's actually a lady here who's written an excellent paper. Debbie Dewart is attending the conference. She's spoken for us before. She's written an excellent critique of the Boundaries book. The idea that you shouldn't let your husband beat you to a pulp, I, I agree, that's valid. But this Boundaries thing is all about my rights, and you're not letting the Bible draw where the lines are. You're, it's this self-expression thing, and um, I'll tell you one more true story. Um, back when I listened to Christian radio now and then, I was driving actually to visit a family in our church, and I turned on, and there's a call-in radio program with Dr. So-and-so from some clinic that was selling some book, I'm sure. And he was describing how um, okay, this lady called in, and so my husband is mean to me. And it doesn't hit me, doesn't yell at me, but he just doesn't appreciate me very much. And he's kind of grouchy when he gets home. And Dr. So-and-so, well, you need to make a boundary. You need to put a stop to this. So you just need to tell him that he cannot treat you this way anymore. And then if he does, the next night when he comes home, you just put an unopened can of beans on his plate and say, it's going to be this way until you start treating me the way I deserve to be treated. And she said, well, I thought the Bible said... <laughs> being Christian radio, that I should be quiet and love him and respect him and serve him. And that, and, and then the doctor, oh no, that never works. 
is what he said. And I don't remember what happened after that because I think I turned off my radio. But it's just sometimes, again, they have this big book of all the things they've done. They're excited about it. And it, it makes sense to them. But there's a way that seems right that leads to death. And they're not submitting that to the Word of God. And there's a risk. Second Corinthians 6 says you can't mix light and darkness. We have to come out of the world. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul says in, in Romans 12. And integration has really infiltrated the church in, in so many ways. And uh, again, Robert Schuller, who is no longer a big deal in that empire, the, the house of glass has crumbled. But um, here's a quote from him. I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. <laughs> And anyway, so I'm going to stop there for now, but there, I'll tell you where I'm going in case you come back tomorrow morning, <laughs> is that I'll, there's one other view that isn't quite there, which would be, okay, we think the Bible should be the supreme authority, but we still think psychology is really important. So that's kind of in my spectrum, kind of all psychology, primary psychology. Okay, we're going to say primary Bible will mix in psychology, then I'm going to spend most of my time tomorrow in my session explaining our view that the Bible is sufficient to help people with their spiritual problems. And that you know, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And what we need is people who are experts in the Bible, who are compassionate, who exemplify Christ to others and who can care for people using the only book that has the answers to these questions. Psychology, again, Heath's was a great introduction for me. Psychology can't help you. Secular psychology can help you with any of the five problems that Heath described. The Bible answers all of those. Whether people listen, that's another question. And then I'll go through ten characteristics of what biblical counseling is. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives that you've pulled us out of the world and that you've given us life in Christ. We thank you that when we face these problems in life, we're not flying blind, that your word is a lamp to our feet. We thank you that we also can use that word to be a light to others in need. We thank you for the gospel, which is life transforming. We thank you that because of the gospel, we've been redeemed from the ways of our forefathers, that we're not determined. Our behavior is not determined by our genetics or our background, but we're new creatures in Christ with new life. Thank you for that hope we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.